If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. As I've said several times, this is the last day of 2017. And in that vein, a particular verse came to mind. And it's here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord helped us. Ebenezer is also mentioned in one of the hymns we sang earlier, Come Thou Found. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. I didn't know this, but I found it interesting that the more modern hymnals, if we could use that designation, have removed the reference to Ebenezer. So instead of here I raise mine Ebenezer, it's like hitherto thy love has blessed me, or here by grace your love has brought me, here I raise to thee an altar. All of which I think remove us from the biblical story. As one author put it, this single word, that is Ebenezer, ushers the worshiper into both the biblical episode and the greater narrative of God's redemptive dealings with his people. What I thought we would do today is consider the background to Ebenezer. This time of the year we usually think of Ebenezer Scrooge and I think miss something really important. What it might have to teach us here at the end of one year and the beginning of another. The story actually begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It begins at the beginning of the book. It's a story of Hannah. She is one of two wives of Elkanah, a Levite who lives in Ephraim. Uh, her rival, Penina, the other wife, has children, but Hannah cannot have children. And so one year when they go up to the tabernacle, she prays to the Lord and makes a vow that if in fact the Lord would give her a son, she would give him back to the Lord. The Lord gives her a son and she names him Samuel. And she did what she had promised to the Lord, that when he was uh, weaned of a particular age, she takes him to the tabernacle and leaves him. And he serves there at Shiloh under Eli the high priest. Eli was, I think, a good man, but his sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, were not. Uh, They behaved rather badly, and we are told this, that they broke the rules in terms of what the priests were allowed to get from the sacrifices to eat. And they also slept with women uh, who served in the tabernacle, at the gate to the tabernacle. Eli is warned by a prophet that he needs to do something, and he rebukes them that, uh, you know, the old man, they don't listen to him, and they continue on their way. Well, in chapter 3, one night the Lord comes to Samuel. Let me read to you the story. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. So he went and lied and lay down. Again the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears hears of it tingle. That time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. This is the beginning of a conversation, of a communication that is lifelong between the Lord and Samuel. We read several verses later, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So you have this young boy who was promised to be returned to the Lord, and Hannah does as as promised. He serves in the tabernacle with a man who I think is a good man, a good high priest, but he does not restrain his sons. He's been warned about it. He doesn't do anything, and so... Samuel is told, and Samuel tells Eli, this is what the Lord has said. Sometime later, the Israelites were fighting against the Philistines. The Philistines are on the Mediterranean coast, uh, you know, the Gaza Strip, that's one of the five cities, Gaza, Gath, Ashkelon, uh, Ashkelon uh, all these, these five cities, they're fighting against the Israelites. And it's not going well for Israel. Uh, 4,000 Israelites are killed in battle. So what is their solution? They decide to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh out of the tabernacle and bring it with them into battle. Um, We read, When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Um, Yeah, they're going to win. And at this point, we need to realize what a horrible thing this is, what a terrible thing that Hophni and Phinehas did. The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to stay in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the tabernacle. Only the high priest is to see it once a year. And yet they bring it out, that which represents the presence of God, and they do so basically so they can win the battle. This is a good luck charm. God's on our side. Look, we've brought God into battle, and we will win. What happens? They don't win. They are routed, and 30,000 Israelites are killed. On that day, Hophni and Phinehas were also killed. And when a messenger runs and tells Eli about it, that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken, he falls off his chair and breaks his neck and dies. That same day, the wife of Phinehas, who is pregnant, goes into labor. And she dies shortly after childbirth, but she is told, don't worry, you have a son. And she says he is to be named Ichabod, means that the glory has departed from Israel. And then she died. It is the end of a line, that line of Eli. The Philistines are overjoyed at their victory. They have not only defeated the Israelites, they have captured Israel's God. They have the Ark of the Covenant. But if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, what becomes very clear to the reader, but also to the Philistines, is that the God of Israel was more powerful than the God of the Philistines. Um, The Philistines decide they need to get rid of this thing because people are dying and terrible things are happening. So after seven months, they're like, okay, let's return it. But they try to be sneaky about it. Let's put the Ark of the Covenant. God, we're returning the Ark. But let's put it on a cart and let's get two cows that have just given birth 
who have never been in a harness before, never been yoked before. And if, if in fact it goes to Israel, then so be it. That, that was the thing. If not, well, we, you know, we tried our best and it didn't work out. So, uh, what we find is that the cows do, in fact, go straight for Israel. They make a beeline for the town of Beth Shemesh. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, which is west of Jerusalem, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. That's their mooing because their, their calves are back at home. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The people of Beth Shemesh, the Israelites, are overjoyed. The Ark of the Covenant has come back. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. But they did something else. Some of the men in Beth Shemesh looked inside the Ark of the Covenant. So you have, on the one hand, they treat it as a good luck charm, and now it's an object of curiosity. And the result was there was a massacre. God killed many of the men of Beth Shemesh. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beshemus asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? And they decided to ask the people of Kiriath-Jerim, which is north-northwest of Jerusalem, not that far away from them, um, if they would in fact take the ark of the covenant. And they do. And now we come to chapter 7. If you look at verse number one, so the men of Kiriath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab, yes, Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, twenty years in all, that the ark remained in Kiriath Jerem, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. It's at this point that we have the immediate setting, the context for Ebenezer. The tabernacle, which had been at Shiloh and the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle may have in fact stayed at Shiloh, but now the Ark is in Kiriath-Jerim. It had been taken by the Philistines, and kept for seven months, it's now been returned, but that return is marked by a massacre. And now one could almost see that the presence of God has been sidelined. Let's, who can deal with this, this, this holy God, this, this fierce God? Let's, let's put him over here in Kiriath and, and hopefully... Uh, will be okay. But at some point in these 20 years, the Israelites recognize that something is going on. At some point, I think later rather than sooner, the Israelites mourned and sought after the Lord. In the cycle we saw uh, in Nehemiah, we talked about this in Judges, you have relapse, ruin, now we come to repentance. And then there will be restoration and rest. We're at the part right before repentance. Samuel, who was both a priest and a judge, who served Israel, they come to him. He's the one who knows what should be done. So this is Samuel that we hear. Verse number three. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their balls and ashtoreths and served the Lord only. I, I don't know about you, but I find this a bit troubling. They all mourn and seek after the Lord, all the while maintaining, and 
apparently continuing to worship false gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Um, Ashtoreth, by the way, is the female counterpart to Baal, both gods of fertility. So you have the male god, Baal, and then you have Ashtoreth, who is the female, the goddess. As best we can tell, the worship, if that's the right word to put it, uh, the rituals that were involved with these practices involved sexual immorality. That basically they were gods of fertility, and so we will participate in fertility rites and hopefully sort of jog them into doing something so that we can have good crops. The rituals, I think, were intended as object lessons, but more than that, I think they were a part of a formula. If you want to have a good crop, this is what you need to do. If you want your animals to, to reproduce, this is what you need to do. For Baal, you need to do this. For Ashtoreth, you need to do this. And if you do this, you will get the result that you desire. How can the people of Israel, the people of God, worship these false gods when that involves sexual immorality while at the same time claiming to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And why mourn, why seek after God if in fact you're already, apparently you've got plenty of gods already. I mean, what's going on? I mentioned this during our time in Nehemiah and I see it here as well in our daily lives. We are made in the image of a personal God, and yet we are drawn to impersonality. And the more I study this, the more I'm convinced it's, it's the result of sin in our lives, of the, of the fall, that God made us to be one particular way, but we want to be another way. We want a formula. We want something that's impersonal that can get us what we want. God has called us to be in relation with him, but we prefer a set of formulas. In a sense, we reject the transcendent, and we much prefer the imminent, the, what's going on right here and now. Simply put, we are looking for something that will help us get us through the day, the week, the month, the season, the year. For the Israelites, yes, God created the world. Moses wrote that so they knew that that was the case. But if you want to get your crops to grow the way that you want, you have to use a particular recipe, a particular formula. And that may involve Baal and Ashtoreth. God created the world, but we need the other gods to help us sort of manage it as we go through. By the way, with Baal and Ashtoreth, no personal relationship required. You just do things, but you don't have to talk to them or communicate or wait for them to talk to you. You just do the things that need to be done. We've seen this as we've gone through Nehemiah and other passages, that in a pagan society, and I would argue we live in a pagan society, people struggle to see things as personal. And they prefer the impersonal. They prefer process, formula. We're pragmatic. Show us how to get something done, and that's how we'll do it. Whereas a relationship takes time, and one might even say a bit of dance, going this way and that way. It, it isn't always a straight line. And I think we much prefer the straight line. Tell us what we need to do so that we can get the results that we want. The biblical view is that we are personal beings made in the image of the personal God, and God is always, always at work personally in his creation. I've mentioned this quote several times before, but let me read it again. God did not create a self-sustaining universe that is now left to operate in terms of autonomous and impersonal laws of nature. 
The universe is not a giant impersonal mechanism like a clock, which God created and wound up at the beginning of time. Ours is not a mechanistic or impersonal world, nor is it an autonomous or impersonal biological entity growing according to some genetic code of the cosmos. Ours is a world which is actively sustained by God on a full-time basis. This means that the universe is inescapably personal. and There's nothing that happens, there's no phenomenon that can happen that is independent from God. So I could argue that the choice is between cosmic personalism, a personal God, and impersonal processes. Now, I think I need to make something clear here. When you get sick, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor prescribes a particular medication, and you take the medication, on the one hand, that can be seen as impersonal and formulaic. But the reality is, if the medicine is going to work, it's because God is at work. It is God who is at work in the life of the doctor to see what your situation is. Um, God has been at work as people have discovered the drugs that are necessary. And when you take the medication, it is God who is personally at work. We are not Luddites. We're not saying, no, we're just going to pray. We're not going to take any medicine. God will take care of us. God is always at work in everything in our lives, and we need to recognize that. The Lord is at work in such things in a very personal way. Uh, If I get a headache and I take an Advil, that can be an impersonal act in which I see it as a process. I just need to take this and then everything will work out. Or I can, in fact, say, God is at work. And if this medication works, it is because God is in a personal way at work. The worship of Baal, I think, is still active today. People don't call it Baal. But what they're doing is they're looking for a process. They're looking for a formula. And they have no recognition of God. No idea of a personal relationship with God. And this is coming to the church as well. In many ways, the church is as much a worshiper of Baal as pagans are. Without getting too technical, I would argue that people look to God for the transcendent. You know, the big thing is God created the world. Okay? But they look to other things for the day-to-day activities in our lives. How to get through the day. Why? Because in a world of science, in a modern world, we prefer knowing how to get results. And if you deal with a transcendent God, that's not always the case. So, we've talked about this before, we can say that God always answers our prayers. Sometimes he says yes, and sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. But he always answers our prayer. Well, yeah, that's not going to work for us. We want a yes answer every time. So we want a situation, a formula, a process, something, a system whereby we can get what we want every time. And when you put yourself in God's hands, you may not get the answer that you want. And people aren't happy with that, and so they look for something else. And the church, in some segments of the church, has sort of been carried away by this. And so there are people who say, if you pray the way I will tell you, you will get your answer, the answer you want every single time. This, this is Baalism. This is looking for a formula, rather than bowing and worshiping before God and saying, 
this is what I want. I think this is what I need, but I put myself in your hands. So you can look within the church and find a formula, or you can look outside the church. And there are plenty of scientific formulas that will, in fact, apparently answer your need in the way that you want. We can think of this in another way, the transcendent and eminent, but we can also think of it as ultimate, you know, what's the ultimate thing in life, the penultimate, the thing before the ultimate. And uh, again, I think rather than, yeah, the ultimate, the transcendent, that, you know, that's just too far away. I want something that will help me right now. And what happens is the penultimate in some weird way becomes the ultimate and it answers our questions. It gets us through the day. And like it or not, it then becomes our God. See, either we look to God for everything. If we don't, if we look to something else for the day-to-day things, then that will slowly but surely come to replace the transcendent and ultimate reality that is God. It's a very real danger, and it's what we find in Israel. So you have a people who are crying out to the transcendent God, God, we're seeking after you. All the while, they're still every day worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth, because those are the gods that get things done. They make sure we have a good crop. They don't, but that's what people think. But something happens, and Israel comes to see yeah, something's wrong with this picture. Something's not right. And so they seek after God. If we do not look to God for everything, then something will come to replace God in that equation. In our lives, we need to take stock. What is it that guides us, that directs us? Is it our desire for things? Is it a desire for recognition? the desire for a hassle-free life. We can go on and on. And if this is, in fact, what directs our prayer lives, then all of a sudden we're no longer dealing with the transcendent God who lives among us. We're focusing only on this, this life and the things that happen here. After 20 years, Israel realized this is not a good system. You can't have Jehovah as the transcendent God and Baal and Ashtoreth as the eminent gods. They need to make things right. And the Philistines have been oppressing them all this time. It may in fact be that they were subjects to the Philistines. And so they come to Samuel. And Samuel says to them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves. Okay, This this distinction you're making between the eternal and the temporal, between the ultimate, penultimate, transcendent and the eminent, yeah, that's got to stop. He is the Lord God Almighty. Okay? So put away the foreign gods in the asteroid and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So what do we find in verses 5 and 6? We find confession, public and corporate. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel was the leader of Israel at Mizpah. Mizpah is north of Jerusalem, about seven and a half miles. 
And there the people gathered and they did three things. They drew out water and poured it on the ground. They fasted and they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. When one fasts, one is in essence saying there's something more important than eating. Eating is necessary for life, but there's something more important. And here it is confessing that they had sinned. Well, what about the water thing? This is the only time that we see this particular act happening in in this way. Um, We do have a statement in Lamentations. uh, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. But that's about 600 years down the road. I don't think that's what it is. I see the pouring out of water is tied to fasting. Because oftentimes when people fast, they still drink water. Because you need water to stay alive. Basically what they're saying is we're not going to eat and we're not going to drink. Here's the water that we got out of the well. We're going to pour on the ground. We're not going to drink it. We, there is something more important than us staying alive. And that is confessing our sins. We will not drink water. We will not eat. We will confess our sins to the Lord. And they do. What happens then is a test. Yeah, let's see. You know, is, this, is this just because you're uncomfortable and you want things to go better? Look at verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. The Philistines, their enemies, have heard, look, they're all in one place. Perfect. Let's go. Let's take care of them. Let's attack them at Mizpah. The Israelites are afraid, and at this point is the real test. Okay, We've been talking about the transcendent God and the eminent gods. Okay, This is an eminent situation. Okay, this is, this is danger right here and now. Should we go to the local gods or should we go to the universal God, the God of all creation? And they cry out to the Lord. They tell Samuel, keep crying out to the Lord that he may deliver us. And here they get it. It's not a formula. It's not a process. It's not some magical thing. They, in fact, look to the Lord. Samuel does as they ask. And the Lord answers them. But we have to stop here. What is the answer? Because remember, sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's wait. Verse number 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. You see, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, and by the way, hosts their army, okay, soldiers, the Lord of hosts comes after them. And with thunder, he is able to sort of throw the Philistines into a panic. And then Israel gets in on the act, as they should. Uh, when we call out to God, we don't just sort of sit passively and wait. They join in, and they are able to slaughter them and disperse them along the way. He, God delivers Israel. And now we come to our text in verse number 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shane. He called it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. 
Ebenezer literally is stone of help. But what does Samuel mean thus far? Does this only include the victory in battle? If so, then where was the Lord the rest of the way? If one answers, oh, he, he was there, he was there, then the question might come up, really? Um, when there was a barren woman who couldn't have children who desperately wanted a child? Well, that sort of turned out okay because God gave her a child and she kept her vow. But when Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were desecrating the tabernacle by their acts, was God helping them along the way? When Eli, when he was warned by a prophet to correct his sons and he didn't do anything, was God helping them then? When the ark was captured by the Philistines, was God helping them? When the ark was returned to Israel and there was a massacre, was God helping them there? By the way, if you get a chance in 1 Samuel 5, it's interesting how the Philistines became very aware that the God of Israel was more powerful than Dagon, their God. When the Ark of the Covenant stayed, one might almost say hidden, at kiriath Jerem for 20 years, was God helping them along the way there? Yes. Yes to all of those. See, we may think we, we may make the mistake of thinking God is only helping us when things go as we wish, when they go well. And then we say, yes, God has helped us. That's why we are where we are. Again, then what was God doing the rest of the time? Were you on your own and then finally God sort of jumped in at a particular point and helped you out? Even when we desperately want something and don't get it, like Hannah, even when we treat God like a good luck charm, like Hophni and Phinehas taking the ark into battle. Even when we view him as an object of curiosity or something to be studied rather than someone to be worshipped, to be honored and to be feared. In other words, we're like the men of Bethshemesh peeking into the ark. Even when we set him aside, out of the way, 20 years, Kiriath, yeah, just, yeah, let's keep the ark over there because it's kind of a dangerous thing. Even when we view him as transcendent, but we look to other things to get us through the day. Eminent formulas or processes. Yes, 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 God has been helping us thus far. God has helped us through 2017. For some, this has been an incredibly difficult year. For some, it's been a year of joy, of delight. I think of Tim and Kim getting married, uh, of Ransom, of Jacob coming. In many ways, it's been a year of delight, but in other ways, it's been very difficult. But God has helped us thus far. He's been helping us all along. So here on this day, we can raise our Ebenezer. And as we look ahead to 2018, we need to recognize, and let's look to him moment by moment, to recognize that he is walking with us. He has been helping us all along and will continue to do so. The temptation is always there to look to something else. We want God to give us something, yeah, but we, we just can't wait. And so we look 
to some other thing, some magic trick, something that will get us what we want. It's, it's a very strong temptation. But may we learn from this particular passage that God has been helping us. He's always been there. Yeah, maybe not the way that we want. Maybe not in the time frame that we want. But he has been our Ebenezer. And by his grace will continue to be so. Let's pray together. Our Father, by your grace, we have come to worship you today. And yet at the same time, if we would examine our hearts, there are other gods in our lives, things to which we look to provide the answers or the solutions, things to supply our wants, quite apart from you. But you are our Ebenezer. You have been helping us all along. Perhaps we've just been too blind to see it. We want you to catch up to where we think we are rather than waiting on you, knowing that you know what is best. You are transcendent, you are ultimate, but you're here in our lives every moment of every day. And as we enter a new year, we don't know what will happen. You do. You're already there. You're preparing the way for us. We ask that it not be as difficult as this past year has been for many. But in any case, you know what is best. Help us to trust you and to worship you and to set aside those false gods in our lives that may take or try to take your place in our lives. Again, we remember those that are sick, that you would touch them, particularly for Ransom and for Stacy. We're grateful to have Robert back and ask you would continue to strengthen him and improve his health. For each of, each of us in the coming year, may you keep us. May we have a sense of your presence every step of the way. Now, as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.